people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello and welcome to Twelve Rules for What. This is a podcast about fascism, anti-fascism, and the far right. I'm Alex, and I'm going by my ever-present co-host, Solan. Hi, Solan. Hi, Alex. Hi, everyone. Ever-present day. Eh? I've always thought of it as more of like a, a an internship or something. But happy to hear it. I feel like I just got a tacit promotion. Yeah, I've upgraded you in the in the <laughs> astral hierarchy of the of the podcast. So today we're joined by David Renton, who's an author and academic, to talk about the Israeli far right. It's a great conversation. So we'll get to that in just a sec. Just to begin, I guess that were um, part of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts. And so you check out our sister shows or our friend comrade shows over on the website or wherever you get their podcasts. And if you want to support the show, you can follow us on Instagram or X, Twitter, at 12 Rules for What. Or you can join our Patreon and pay some money and you'll get access to early episodes. And you will also get, and this is new, an episode which won't come out on for a little bit on the current situation in Germany, which is going to go up. Well, it'll be up by the time we recorded this podcast. And that's done with recurrent guest, past guest, Pavel. Stellan, you got any announcements? Should we get going? No, no announcements on my part. I just want to add to what you said that it's uh, really exciting to have David on the show and just to plug, not plug, but I'd say I've been, been in advance of the interview reading David's book on the labor anti-Semitism crisis, which is called Labor's Anti-Semitism Crisis, What the Left Got Wrong and How to Learn from It, which is uh, touches on some of the things we talk about on the show, although obviously the focus is different, but it's a really interesting and compelling book. So yeah, look into that. Okay, and on with the show. And now we're going by David Renton, who's a frequent recurrent guest to the show. Welcome, David. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. And hi, Solan. Hi, welcome David, welcome to the show. We're going to talk today about the far right in Israel and um, I mean, I've, I've, I've wanted to do this episode for a little while ever since the, the ongoing bombing of Gaza, the genocide in Gaza and I found it quite hard to like, I mean, conceptualise what the far right means within the Israeli context. I mean, we're talking about a society which is already like racially segregated in many places, is currently conducting a genocide and is responsible for, for example, like, you know, thousands of Palestinians being administratively detained without charge, etc, etc. And so I wondered for you, where do you place the far right within within the Israeli context? Well, I think we do need to start with how this story is picked up in the press. I will do how I see it and how I think anti-fascists should see it. But let, let's start with like, the liberal discourse and the way that paints it, because for, you know, for liberals in America and Britain, and, and I think they take the lead from people in, in Israel itself. When they talk about the far right, and this is how this term then, then pops up on news media and so on, when, when they talk about the far right, they're talking about what in their mind is the most important thing, which is a series of developments which happened in Israel last year. Which, and, and that was essentially the elections which led to the formation of the most right-wing government in Israeli history. And very soon afterwards, this government's formed, this cabinet was formed, and it, it pushed forward various measures. They were essentially these, that there'd be a like judicial coup and a bunch of senior judges would have to stand down. The replacements would all be appointed by politicians. And then thereafter, if, if judges ever made any decision which politicians didn't like, politicians could just override it. 
And behind all of that was something which, which in a sense doesn't sound very new in Israeli terms, which is this very long-standing process by which um, Netanyahu has been on trial for quite a long time. The charges have now been put in terms of him facing charges of bribery and fraud, which in a normal judicial legal system would be expected to result in him serving quite a lengthy jail term. So in essence, you had an alliance between Netanyahu and this new group of politicians, these far-right politicians. And basically the trade-off was that Netanyahu would get to detonate all of Israel's existing legal system. And in return, they'd get some radicalization of Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. I'll come back in a bit to what that meant concretely. But, but every discussion here, because almost the only paper in Britain which takes any interest in Israeli politics seems to be The Guardian. And the whole coverage in The Guardian was what the far right means is these are politicians who are going to mean that, that um, Israel, in relation to its Jewish population, is no longer a democratic state that no longer has the rule of law. So the far right means that people are going to enable Netanyahu's coup, as it were. And of course, for, I imagine for people listening to this, that's part of the story, but it's not a main part of the story. It's not the most important part of the story. What's far more important is what the far right meant for the Palestinians. And, and I, I think you're right to start with like, how, what's changed? Well, given that things in Israel were so bad, how on earth could this have got, got even worse? And I'll try and explain this using two of the, the most common metaphors you hear that people use when trying to explain what's going on, on in, in, in Palestine. One of the phrases you hear a lot is that Palestinians live in an open-air prison. And to be honest, that's a really accurate and good way of describing what conditions have been like in Gaza for over a decade, where no one's got any jobs, where if you want to have food and water, have to come in through the UN, and they, they can only come in through border crossings, which Israel controls. And literally, there are Israeli um, civil servants whose job is to make sure that, that you know, rather than getting 3,000 calories a day, Palestinians, no Palestinians get more than 2,000 calories a day. No Palestinian can get as much water so they can drink. And that's what life's been like in Gaza for, for over a decade, frankly. Or you could talk about apartheid. Often talk, people talk about Israeli apartheid. And that's a really good way of describing what conditions are like, right, or, or were like um, before October in the West Bank and Jerusalem, where actually Palestinians living in both West Bank and Jerusalem could go off and work in Israel. Like something like a quarter of all building workers in Israel before October were Palestinians. 10% of Israeli civil servants were Palestinians up to October. So, so that, that, uh, that whole metaphor is about describing things before October, and it's saying Palestinians in Israel have about as many rights as blacks in South Africa. They're controlled, they're kept apart, there's hostile racial minority, but they, you know, some people can work. Now, now, the point I really want to convey is that because of the presence of the far right in the Israeli government, I'm not saying this is the only factor, but it's one significant factor, um, that's enabled Israeli politics to be radicalised and for the occupation to become much, much more violent. And that process was going on well before October, really by spring and summer last year. All the language we used to like open-air prison apartheid, it, it no longer connected how bad things were already getting. So there was already a very active process because the far-right ministers in this government of ethnically cleansing Palestinians from lands around uh, Ramallah and Jericho. There were already, I think, before October, in excess of 200 Palestinians just been killed in Israeli incursions into Palestinian territories. So what the far right meant is that in a situation which was for years apartheid and an open-air prison, the far right ministers meant that Israel's um, occupation could be much more violent, there could be much more harassment, much more killing. And of course, then that's only intensified since 7th of October. And I just want to pause here because, I mean, again, everyone's following the news, everyone knows this is going on, but I really want to labour this to give people a sense of how bad things are getting. 
when we talk about the occupation, we've got this sort of word, the Nakba, which is the Palestinian word, the catastrophe, the worst thing that happened in Palestinian history, and that's in 1948. But if you look back at 1948, the total number of Palestinians killed in 1948 was only 10,000. You saw in that year destruction of homes, loss of lives, people driven from their homes. But the war, which, which has been going now for three or four months, has already seen three times as many Palestinians killed as in the whole of 1948. In fact, if you add up everyone who, every Palestinian who died in 1948 and every Palestinian who died from 1948 up till October last year, the last three months has seen more Palestinians killed than all of that 75-year history. So, you, so to understand what's going on in Israel, you have to be saying that like, this is a regime which was already bad, which was terrible, which was profoundly racist, but has become way radicalized compared to anything it's been in the past. And part of that story is the presence of this far right, at one time seen in Israeli politics as weird, extreme, terrible people who should have no part in politics. And now literally the government, you know, the ministers in the government who are in charge of the army, for example. I think Smotrich is one of these guys he... I read that he he lives on an illegal Israeli settlement in the occupied on occupied Palestinian territories, and you know he's in he's in charge of not only does he live there but he's in charge of security in these settlements in in the West Bank, which is obviously where he's most interested in being the extremist that he is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, if I if I maybe I'll come back on that. I mean, look, I think there are two people who are really worth focusing on. One's Bezalel Bezalel Smotrich, one's Itamar Ben Kavir, and yeah. yeah, I mean. They're very different sort of figures. I'll come on to maybe Ben Kvir later, but Smotrich, he's like the representative of the social movement. It's not just he lives on a settlement, he was born on a settlement. And right. his kind of role within Israeli politics is to take this settler movement, which has been annexing Palestinian land, and just say every single demand that's come out of the settler movement, his job in Israeli politics is to get those to become policies adopted by the government. So things that have been pushed through laws, criminalizing criminalizing Jews who marry Muslims and mandating they have to go to prison, laws saying that, that hospitals aren't allowed to have Muslim women give birth on wards where a Jewish woman might give birth, attempts to say that, that Israeli secular law isn't really important. What matters is Jewish religious law, the Torah, attempts to take rights away from LGBT people. Smotrich, one of his big ideas is the idea that, you know, the rules of engagement for the Israeli army should be that if, if an Israeli soldier and a Palestinian see themselves on the same street, then by definition, the Palestinian doesn't have to do anything. The Israeli soldier should be told to shoot on sight. And obviously that that's all about sort of spreading a notion of, of land capture and, and so on. And that's really what Smotrich stands for. Ben is similar, but he comes from more ideological um, background. I just quickly, like I think, and this was a question for later, but it's, it's, I think it's particularly pertinent just after that point. Like, this Israel still has this kind of um, image among certain circles in the media and, and in politics of being this kind of progressive bastion or like this last only civilizational outpost in the Middle East or like um, Zionism as some kind of like progressive ideology that's worth fighting for or worth defending or worth like accommodating or even reforming, you know. It, you know, Zionism just needs to change and, and get better, and 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 this this kind of image that is often talked about in the media and and, and among our politicians is almost is, is in stark contrast to this kind of cartoonishly extreme policies that are being kind of run through into the into actual state practice in Israel. So I just wondered how 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 does that get accommodated in in the West? I know. I just think I'm sorry. This isn't going to be a very long or deep answer, but I just think. 
all you can go back to is this incredible capacity um, of liberals for self-deception. Yeah. The first self-deception is just about the Imperial Project, wherever the Imperial Project is. Liberals just have to believe that when colonizers go around the world, they're going around the world to do good. And yeah. that's a really stupid thing to believe. But, but, you know, tens of thousands of people in history have convinced themselves that that's true. But then, yeah, I mean, there's this immense self-deception about Israel, um, its direction of travel, what it's been like for quite a long period of time, frankly. I mean, just to pick up off of that point, you've mentioned already Smotrich and also Ben Gavir. So this, this current, and certainly made a very strong case for why this particular coalition government does mark a serious worsening of the Israeli states, or like a power, a major shift to the right along many different axes. This is a coalition government that's backing Netanyahu. What, what, who does this coalition consist of? What are the constituent parts of it? And maybe, as as Alex was mentioning, the kind of the 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 tradition of seeing Zionism as a kind of progressive force. What is the historical trajectory that's led to this this extremely right wing political formation now? I think. I mean, if maybe I do the trajectory, then the coalition, and at some mm. point I do want to come back to Ben Gvir because he's he's an interesting figure. But um, in in terms of the trajectory, I mean, the the tra- trajectory is kind of I think a familiar one that that you know the generation of politicians who founded Israel in 1948 were a set of people who, whose politics had been formed in a much earlier period. You know, it's always the okay. case. You know, at any point when you look at politics, the people who, who are governing were people who were in their twenties, thirty years before then, and they're still working out things which they remember from their youth. And that's very much true of the, the 48th generation in Israel, that, that, that then and essentially for about 40 to 50 years after the party was founded, had almost continuous governance by Labour politicians. And those Labour politicians were all people who'd lived through the Russian Revolution, the immense left would turn to global politics in the 1920s. And, and their dominant politics were, were kind of, they were colonial, but they were also Labour colonial. So the idea was that you would treat, you would create in Israel a kind of colonial but social democratic society. And, and that lead, you know, for a generation of people a bit later, what's incredibly important are things like the kibbutz movement and the idea of people on land colonies settling, settling the land. And this, this sort of picked up all sorts of left-wing traditions, but left-wing traditions that wouldn't see what was fundamentally wrong about colonialism. So what's happened is since that moment in Israel, which is the 40s, the trajectory is all at every point has been to the right. That that um, when you place laborism and you try to synthesize it with colonialism, year by year, the labor element got weaker and the colonial element got stronger. And that's kind of the whole history of Israel, um, the whole domestic history of Israel over the last 75 years. What was on the surface a very left-wing social democratic society essentially purges all elements of social democracy out of it. Then as to who's in the coalition, the, there are parties in the coalition. I mean, the, the largest the largest single party in, in, in the coalition is essentially groups around Netanyahu. Netanyahu, he, he's taken over the main um, historically centre-right party in Israeli politics, Likud. And then there's been this vast proliferation over the last 10, 15, 20 years of, of different parties, which is sort of like, they're like personal fiefdoms of, of individual politicians. And, and when they're to the right of Netanyahu, they're all really trying to pick up one of about three or four different social bases. So the social bases, that sometimes it seems like the most important social basis is a kind of Jewish Orthodox millenarianism. At other times, it feels like the most important social basis is Jews who had lived before 1948 in Arab countries and their descendants. At another time, it feels like it's Russian immigrants to Israel 
all these different groups at one time or another felt like they're the kind of cutting edge of a new right-wing advance. Um, but in, in essence, I think looking at them is almost to kind of miss the point. What the point is really is it's neoliberalism using nationalism and populism as ways to make itself seem popular and new and, and innovate repeatedly in very similar ways to, to happens outside Israel. Just in Israel, for various reasons, it seems to happen more violently and faster. So the thing you just have to come back to again and again is, is how colonialism shapes that politics and the fusion, not no longer of colonialism and social democracy, but colonialism plus neoliberalism just makes for different varieties of really hellish and right-wing politics. Itamar Ben-Vigir, you, you mentioned it before, and you said he was ideological. And mm. obviously he's a, a committed Kahanist. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And and I think people hear that and they don't really know what it means. So what is Kahanism? Um and why is it so notable that a Kahanist is in in power in in a in a position of power in Israel? I think I, th- I think it's a it's a current that, that I you know I've tried to follow for some time because I mean in some ways it feels like a lot of things we're talking about on this program and have been, you know, for the last few years, but in some ways it's also kind of distinctive and new. So Kahanism essentially goes back to the 60s and America. It's, it's a movement that is all created in, in the US and, and only later exported to Israel. And it's basically pushed by this guy, Mayor Kahani, who is watching the 60s go, going on and gets more and more infuriated by the rise of left-wing Jewish movements, by the rise of Black Panthers and after Black Panthers, other forms of black struggle. And he, he just sort of sets himself this idea that you can have a kind of radicalism of the right and a Jewish radicalism of the right. And it all starts in particular, there's a strike in New York in 1968, which is essentially about will will um, the schools, which now have predominantly black pupils, will they have um, black teachers to teach them? And therefore, will we have to, um, as it were, remove a bunch of Jewish teachers from these black schools? And that, that, as you can imagine, in a world of identity politics, which we already were in in the 60s, was really charged and contentious argument. And out of that, he sets up the Jewish Defence League as a kind of right-wing reactionary thing, but it, it copies a lot of the style of, of the Panthers. All their badges and symbols all have guns on them. And, and they begin this process of in, it, essentially carrying out um, armed right-wing attacks on a series of left-wing targets. Um, they, they largely um, originate this tactic, for example, of going into universities and if a teacher has um, its teaching course, which has as part of its part of the, the teacher will have a week on the politics of Palestine, trying to get that teacher labeled an anti-Semite, trying to get them fired. The JDL also like threatens to shoot them as well. We haven't got that in Britain or America right now. But they're, you know, they're serious about taking that violence. Now, what happens to Carney eventually is that um, he's put on trial for terrorism offences by the US state, found guilty. And he flees to Israel, where he founds a party called CAP. And then they stand in the 1980s, they win a few seats. He, he tries to play this very similar role then to the role that people are playing today. And it completely backfires. He, he does very similar things in terms of calling on the army to begin genocide of Palestinians. His party's banned, he's driven out of politics. So what happens is, is the Kahani tradition becomes, it's the, only, it's the only right-wing tradition in Israeli politics that's ever on the receiving end of state hostility and closed down. And there's always this idea that he and his followers are beyond the pale. They're the only people who are Jewish, who are pro-Israeli in Israel, who are beyond the pale. And then that really gets us, so where does that get to Ben Gavir? And the, the process is basically this, that there's a massacre in Hebron 
1994, where one of Kahane's followers, a man called Barrett Goldstein, who, like Kahane, grew up in America, and it's, he's actually stood for Kaka, he comes over to Israel as as American, becomes a settler and so on. And there's a massacre at Hebron in 1994 where he kills 29 people. And a lot of this generation, people like Smotrich and Benvir, then then pop up for the first time because when Goldstein kills these people, this seems shocking. It's the kind of dying end of the labor hegemony within Israel. The idea that, that just an ordinary Israeli could go off and just kill 29 people just because they're Palestinian. Shocking, these people are labeled fascists. But what happens is they go, start going on TV and they defend Goldstein and say, everyone should do it. There's nothing wrong with what he did. You know, they, they bring out badges celebrating the killings. So for, for Israelis, it's kind of like, I was trying to think of a comparison here. And it's like, you know, that way that, that, that in Britain for the last 20 years, it's just, it's just always felt like whatever happens, Barrage is going to be on TV mm-hmm. and he's a circus yeah. act and everyone hates him, but he still comes on TV. And that's basically the role being the role of um, there that he's been this permanent celebrity who's just brought on TV at some time to be shocking, sometimes to be offensive. And his stick is always, he supports genocide. Some stories about him, you know, his first date with his wife, he takes her to Barrett Goldstein's tomb so they can sit there admiring the guy who killed 29 people. He, he's, for 30 years he has, you walk into his house, the first thing you see is a huge painting of Goldstein, his hero. And all through, ever since the summer, he's been the minister in charge of the IDF and touring around Israeli um, cities, meeting with groups of Israeli soldiers and telling them, sometime very soon we're going to put you into battle and your job is just going to be to kill as many Palestinians as you can. It just, it's hard to like, it's hard to like have this like quite measured conversation about a, a guy like this who so clearly worships a, a spree killer, you know, like someone who just killed multiple, the 29 people for, 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 the, for what race they are. I mean, I, it just feels... I mean, that's the point, right? That's why he got on television, because it was the most shocking thing. But Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and it, I think it goes back to that, that thing you were saying, you were encouraging me to say before, which is just like, what's incredibly frustrating to you, someone who, who, you know, writes about this stuff, tries to get these, these, some of these arguments into the mainstream media, is how incredibly difficult it is to get people talking about it. I hope I'm not breaking any secrets here. When we're talking about this show, one of the things, you know, you said, is, is there anything you could read? And I was able to send you, like, a couple of articles from Red Pepper where, you know, exile Israeli activists have written about this stuff. But there's so, so little of this thing is being, you know, reported on in, in Britain. So, there's so little sense of this getting into our national coverage of, like, how Israel is. The, the, the disjunct between what the press tells us about Israel and what things are actually like in that country is just extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, also, this is a bit unrelated, but another little example of that, I suppose, is, you know, people hear the statistics about how many people have died in Gaza and how awful it is. But then you never really see, like, a a wide shot of Gaza City now and how it's essentially been flattened and it looks, you know, like the the apocalypse has come down. And I don't think people... That's not on the TV. That's not on the TV. We don't see that. And it's it's a similar... I think there's a similar disconnect going on. Definitely. I, I wanted to not change tack exactly, but sort of zoom out a bit and, and, and talk a little bit about the connections between this consolidating Israeli far-right government and its international partners, I suppose, to be a little euphemistic about it. But you spoke about the kind of internal contradictions of the kind of like labor component and the imperial colonial project 
as a kind of dynamic of Israeli society and the Israeli state shifting further and further to the right. And I think you've you've also written about, as have others as well, that this move to the right in Israeli society has, to an extent, increasingly begun to alienate Israeli politics or to alienate uh, Jewish people in diaspora from Israeli politics, and that there's a kind of concurrent drive on the part of the Israeli far right to cultivate and build stronger relationships to figures like uh, Orban Hungary. Yeah. And and I wonder if you could speak about that. How does this work out? What does this benefit? What does this manifest as? Well, I think you can talk about it on their side and on on our side. On their side, you know, there's lots of different examples of this phenomenon of Israel courting far right figures. Sometimes figures, sometimes um, states. So you know, like just an example that's really obvious. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen Elon Musk mm. first visiting Israel, meeting government officials, then going to Auschwitz. You know. Clearly, he did that in response to the very heavy, heavily negative coverage he was getting within the States. He's been platforming anti-Semites. He's been having friendly conversations with them. All sorts of people have been boycotting Twitter, refusing to advertise. So he was trying to say, look, I'm, you know, I might be an anti-Semite, but I'm a good anti-Semite. And Israel was really happy to say, yeah, yeah, you're a good anti-Semite. You're on our side. And you could use many more examples of that. You know, you could talk about how, you know, since 2017 and 18. First, Poland and Hungary were starting to get a lot of heat within the European Union. Poland, I and mean, obviously there have now been elections in Poland and we've got a new government now, but for one of the things which seemed particularly nasty that Poland was doing was essentially making it a criminal offence to publish Holocaust histories, which accurately described the role of ordinary Poles in terms of supporting the Holocaust. And they created a whole panoply of criminal punishments that unpatriotic histories of the genocide published in that country. And then what happened is Netanyahu travelled to Poland and said, you know, he signed a joint statement with the Polish government supporting what they were doing. So mm-hmm. that was pretty hideous, frankly. Or again, this is a very similar example, again, about the same time, 2017-18, we still have the Orban government in Hungary. A lot of how it, it sort of stands in elections is by creating this anti-Semitic myth about Soros. Again, they've had Netanyahu visit, calling Orban a true friend of Israel as a sort of strategy for taking the heat off these various governments. So in a sense, there's what their side of politics is doing, which is this ever busier and thicker alliance between Netanyahu and other various forms of far-right actor. Um, But there's also the other side of this, and I think you're absolutely right to raise it, which is that not necessarily within Israel, where, where politics still seem very narrow and limited, but for example, in the United States, there's this huge Jewish movement of protest against Israel because... In essence, you know, in the States, Jewish politics has been moving left since the first Trump election in 2016. Um, people in huge numbers identify with, as anti-Zionist, don't identify with Israel, see Israel as part of this kind of alliance of racist systems of power. And, you know, all through the last three, four months, which has been hugely hearty, is, is those images we've all seen again and again of different groups of people, you know, wearing skullcaps and whatever, being willing to be arrested in order to protest against Israel. So there's polarization on both sides. You can see you can see a process of, of people beginning to see through this. But obviously, you know, doing that in the States where where, you know, all the institutions of cultural power, so much of the state and policing is ranged against them and are on the side of, you know, particularly a democratic president who's continuing to arm Israel sending over the weapons that are actually causing Palestinian deaths. 
So there also seems to be this disconnect that you just spoke of between the diaspora and especially younger members of the diaspora, although it's not, that's not a, that's not a kind of an overwhelming statement. Like plenty of older, different generations are also, have also, there's been a turn more generally. There's, did Israel often likes to present itself as like the safest place for Jews to be in the world. And you, you saw this, I suppose, particularly after the, the Paris, the Paris attacks where, you know, Netanyahu has said, come to Israel, it's safe here, blah, blah, blah. And at the moment, you know, Israel's one of the least places, safest places to be a Jew in, in the world. And I wondered, how is this kind of disconnect going to develop? Do you think it's like an entrenching, like a, a fracture or a rupture? Or do you think there's efforts? Because it feels like Israel is on one trajectory and it seems increasingly difficult to kind of put back together again. Yeah, look, I, I think that's right. I mean, the you, you know, you really have to struggle quite hard to find any developments in Israel in the last three or four months to give people hope. You know, in the 1980s, early 1980s, at the time of the massacres in, in the Lebanese camps at um, Shabrinshatrila, you know, there was a peace movement in Israel which found it very easily to mobilise hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. The protests now have been restricted to one or two cities. Numbers are so small uh, and it's it, you know it's quite dispiriting you know someone who, who spent quite a long time trying to build up networks with israeli leftist activists the numbers of people who, who are really willing to say even now you know we're going to sit down in front of the tanks we're going to we're going to try in any way at all to sabotage this war effort the numbers of people doing that is just tiny but that's what needs to happen frankly and maybe you can see if the war war carries on i mean maybe that maybe that unity could break but it's it's very different to go from it's a totally different story to go from Israel to go from there to you know Jewish opinion in the United States and in Jewish opinion in the United States I mean I, I feel like the way with the way what we're seeing is almost like a kind of unraveling of the historical process of the creation of the Zionist hegemony over Jewish opinion because that story if you want to tell it and you know lots of people have been telling it the last few months it's a story that that's got so many different chapters to it and it begins with these tiny numbers of people having to create majorities here and being setbacks and getting one little victory and having defeat. There was this huge process you had to go through in terms of Zionism becoming something which, you know, 1% of world Jews took seriously to something that was the overwhelming support, even amongst the diaspora of 60 or 70% of the people. And I think some of the fractures you're seeing now in the States are actually fatal. I don't mean that, 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 you know, a majority of Jews in America even now consider themselves anti-Zionist. But what I mean to change, I, I don't I don't see how this can be reversed, is there are now permanent institutions, active, dynamic, cultural institutions of anti-Zionist Jews that, you know, have tens of thousands of supporters that when they have like rabbinical, you know, rabbinical councils to advise them on what their position should be in terms of their anti-Zionist politics, they can get into the room 50 or 100 rabbis without difficulty. That's a permanent change, and that means that it's no longer possible to say, as it was until relatively recently, oh, everyone, every Jew in the world supports Israel. People who follow Jewish politics, you just can't say that now. That would be a ridiculous claim to make. It just means in every single country in the diaspora, it's just absolutely obvious that this is a contested opinion. There are people on both sides. You said this is mainly about younger people. Yeah, actually, I think it is mainly about younger people. You know, there are, there are polls of American Jews under 30, and... There are solid majorities of people saying clearly they identify as anti-Zionist. And that's a completely different situation even from a decade ago. I think to to 
pick that up a little bit since we're kind of the conversation is moving in the direction of discussing also opposition to this far right tendency in Israel and its influence on politics and diaspora as well. I wanted to pick up on Alex's framing from the from the top of the the discussion regarding you know in the context of a state which is uh, highly militarized, in which you know I mean I won't rehash the the, the litany of 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 horror that the Israeli state has inflicted on the Palestinian people in the last decades, but in the context where the state and to an extent civil you know society the society more broadly is so far to the right i suppose you've you've made the case that this this phenomenon that's arisen recently around netanyahu it does indeed mark a qualitative shift but it does make sense to speak of a far right but what does the opposition to that far right look like i mean is it do you see it as as something that can be resisted on its own with the calls for a return to a more sensible form of Zionism or a more humane form of occupation or, you know, kind of law and order liberalism, like root out the corruption, you know, or does opposing this burst of far-right politics entail necessarily a more wholesale opposition to the colonial and imperial project? We're an anti-fascist podcast, so I'll try and do it that through anti-fascist politics. Mm. Um, I, I think what you really bring out is, is there's this constant tension within the whole history of anti-fascism it goes something like this we look at society changing for the worse and we want to apply kind of emergency break kind of politics and whenever you apply try to apply an emergency break kind of politics what you're doing is saying look this is new this is terrible this is something completely different everything's gone before drop everything and fight this now the problem with those kinds of calls is that when they're done well they can mobilize a lot of people but when they're done badly there can be an element of deceit about them. We can say, look, all this thing which is happening is about the new. Let's not talk about the old. And there's just this whole recurring argument in British politics, which has come back uh, at ev- in every generation, in the 30s, in the 70s, in the 90s, in the last decade, of should we be anti-fascist, narrowly conceived, or should we just be against everything? What are the plus and minuses? Now, the whole, the whole thing I want to say is, is that the answer to that, there's not an eternal answer to the people who always let's do anti-fascism and the people who do always let's let's dilute anti-fascism and merge it into anti-everything. Neither of those positions are right. Some of them is the principled answer at some historical conjuncture. And if you look particularly like in the last year, I was trying to think that there must be people in Israel. I mean, like, I'm looking at some of the photos on demos. I'm, I'm not pretending that, you know, this is based on any knowledge of, of people following them, just seeing their images. I'm sure I've seen in the last year on some of the demonstrations, you know, pictures of people using anti-fascist iconography, using anarchist flags, using, you know, red and black flags together, talking about Netanyahu as a fascist, trying to oppose him as a fascist. And I, I just think the practical expression, what that's meant in Israel in the last 12 months, is this mass movement against the judicial reforms that said, we're against Netanyahu, but we've got to keep silent about the occupation. And, you know, what happened is, is on those protests, and those protests were, you know, one of the largest social movements in Jewish-Israeli history. But the problems that activists had is they respected this line that we can only talk about the corruption and we can't talk about the occupation. And, and there were even instances of, like, people trying to form anti-occupation blocks on those protests, being held back by stewards, being kept away from the main march, and being physically attacked. And you can see the disaster. If that was anti-fascism or, or if that was kind of the narrow 
resist the big new thing that's happening now, kind of politics, which anti-fascism, when it's bad, can be, you can see what a disaster it's been because it kind of signally failed to use this mass movement of people on the streets as a chance to talk about Palestinian rights and therefore to create the kind of protest coalition that we'd need right now. So, I mean, if, if that's kind of what you're getting at, that, that whenever we talk about anti-fascism, we still got to have, in, in a sense, the totality of what we're against. We've got to have a sense that Israel's not just, in this concrete example, Israel's not just an occupation, not just a, a judicial coup state, it's also, also an occupation state. Then, yeah, I totally agree with that, that, that you've got to have the broader politics. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're failing to create the conditions for the next round of struggle. Well, yeah. I'm just thinking about anti-fascism within the, within the UK, within the, the Palestine Solidarity Movement as it sprung up in this latest round of activity. And it's obviously completely inappropriate for it to be construed like an anti-fascist struggle. And it's obviously not that, but like there are, there are like, I often think of it, I've, I've been thinking quite a lot about like, what, what, how do you, what is an anti what does it mean to build an anti-fascist politics? And obviously a point I've repeated a lot on this, on this show is like, you know, anti-fascism is in reaction to something. It's in reaction to the far right or a fascist threat to other movements that we are also a part of, or at least it yeah. should be. And so if you look, if you look in this round of struggle, you see figures like Tommy Robinson coming back and, and claiming on certain shows that he's doing that, you know, there should be a block of, of far right types to, to go and, defend the cenotaph or go down to the to demonstration and defend Israel and, and all this kind of thing. And it's in within that, within those movements where we find anti-fascism. And obviously as anti-fascism, we should be all going beyond the marches and all getting involved in struggling against, for example, the, the, the war machine here. But I think it becomes much more difficult to construe within within Israel and within Israeli society, like, you can't. Any singular focus will will miss the kind of massive, massive forest, which is this ongoing situation of belligerent occupation and 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 death. Well, well, if, if I can piggyback off off your question, that's right. An answered slightly different question from the one that you asked. We, we've talked a lot about how what what's the Israeli side of this emergent Israeli relationship with the far right. I mean, one thing that's, that 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 I think we need to have as part of our analysis of anti-fascists is. What's the what's the fascist side of this alliance between Israeli the Israeli state and its supporters and the global far right? I mean, you know, I do I do think that it's something that that's worth repeating again and again. That, for example, in relation to Tommy Robinson, you know, who has been who who is the only identified significant funder of Tommy Robinson in the last decade, and the only collective organisation which he doesn't control, which we've been able to trace, has been used to fund him money. So there was a particular pro-Zionist um, American multi-millionaire in the States, one of his charities, which is essentially a pro-Israel charity, was paying Tommy Robinson by 2018. The Guardian uncovered this in excess of £100,000 a year. So it's been really, really helpful to different parts of the British far right that, you know, they've got the excuse that they're supporting Israel. They've got on occasion, probably not on many occasions, but on at least one clear occasion, a lot of funds. Um, from people whose main politics are Zionist. And, and the other thing, of course, is, is that I, I did just want to mention, which I don't know if people have seen, is that literally this weekend, you, you started to see for the first time significant pro-Israeli news sites in Britain starting to question the whole thing, this alliance they've got into with Tommy Robinson and the far right. There was a major article in the, in the Jewish news, which isn't 
you know, by any means, any sort of left-wing paper and saying, look, for God's sake, we can't let Tom, Tommy Robinson onto our demos again. And, and talking about how, if you look at British internet chatter that's supporting the Israeli war effort, a vast amount of it is just carried, out, carried on now by far-right accounts. I thought it was the first time that, that you could actually see, you know, a significant block of mainstream Jewish opinion in Britain asking out loud and saying, you know, for about a decade, we've tried to have something we've never had before, which is an unspoken but real alliance with the populist and street right, where we would work together towards the same targets. We wouldn't acknowledge each other, but we would we would work together. And, you know, Jesus, yeah, Ronald, do we really want to have this relationship? Because it's not how we like to think about ourselves. So I thought that that was quite an interesting development and the sign that, you know, some of that's been cracking under, under the tensions of this war and, and all the things that have happened because of it. On that note, I think, unless we've got any final thoughts, we'll, we'll end it there. Solan? Well, I, mean, I suppose I, I have so many more questions, but we do we do have limited time here. I just, to say, David, that, yeah, you absolutely nailed the subtext of my earlier question exactly right. I think there's, and I think your, your, your comments there about this emerging cracks in the kind of tacit alliance between parts of the populist far right and the more conservative institutions and publications that that speak to a Jewish audience or Jewish constituencies is an interesting one. I think, again, there's that tension, though, about whether the political imaginary that emerges out of those splits is one in which we can imagine a more, you know, one which imagines a more kind of sensible imperialism and what concretely can be done to, to widen that those cracks to the point that um, a truly anti-fascist alternative or anti-imperialist, anti-colonial alternative can appear. And I think that's not, a. I think the, that question and those tensions are really heightened when discussing Israel, but I think it's a challenge for the anti-fascist movement more broadly as well, or for the formulation of any anti-fascist politics. So yeah, thank you for sharing your thoughts well, on that. that. That's my pleasure, Simon. If I could just have like maybe a couple of sentences to wrap up, if right, and bouncing up what you were just saying there. I think the truth is a lot of the time that in the anti-fascist movement, the people we're in dialogue, the next people to our right, are people who are kind of liberals, or they might be leftists, but who are kind of influenced by liberal political arguments. And, you know, liberalism itself has a discussion about fascism. And I think maybe I just want to end with a couple of sentences addressing that, because we're all involved in Palestine, solidarity work, we're all on the demonstrations. I take that as read. But, but also one thing which is going to happen this year is at the end of this year, we're going to have possibly, probably, the election of a Donald Trump government in the States. And in and, and kind of, as we get towards that becoming more and more a real a real likelihood, we're seeing more and more of liberal opinion getting absolutely fixated in what's superficially an anti-fascist way by the fear of what that would mean. And I just think, you know, when you see people who are shaped by that, that politics, our answer to them has got to be, well, you know, you want a liberal world order. You want a system where people who um, behave by the rules, well, okay, you know, we're going to take for the moment, we're going to suggest, we're going to imagine that you mean that in good faith. We're going to take that seriously. All right. How on earth can you have a, a liberal rules playing when, you know, right now you've got, you know, the major judicial institutions in the world, the International, the International Court of Justice turning around to Israel and saying, stop the genocide now. And liberalism's going, and liberalism's most certainly not going, yes, we agree. We're going to defend the rules-based order. We've got America right now. We've got Biden not only sending billions of dollars of military assistance to Israel, you've actually got him doing it without congressional assistance. Him, you know, 
to a significant extent, ripping up the US Constitution to do so. And again, I don't hear a single peep out of liberals going, Jesus, if we're serious about saving the Royal Spade Order, if we're serious about not having a world with war and genocide, right now we need to be calling this out and standing up for the Palestinians. You know, what? how, how dare liberals be surprised if Trump does end up being the winner and he does set the world alight, if for God's sake, they're the people who, who in this moment, just months before, they're the people who've been lighting the fuse. So, you know, I think some of what we're doing is, is we're, we're like pointing out to those people. They're not necessarily our allies, but they're kind of people who influence our allies. And we're saying to them, come on, you've got to move left pretty sharp and you've got to call this stuff out and you've got to actually put your bodies on the line in support of the Palestinians because otherwise, you know, your liberal anti-fascism is going to be facing one hell of a historic defeat. And you can be part of stopping that by taking the right stuff now, being on the right side now. I kind of feel like the the kind of good version of that that figure is Peter Urborn, who obviously is a, was a long-time Tory and has made a kind of argument. And it's very it's very good on about the, what's happening right now about the genocide, but has made an argument about that that kind of argument you're saying about a, a rules-based order and you know it's a bit cringe, but like Britain stands up for the good guy or the the, the underdog. Which is obviously completely untrue, but he's 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 advancing the argument in 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 a, in a means to defend the Palestinian people from genocide. So yeah, yeah. Anyway. Well, if this if this podcast helps to make one, two, three Peter O'Borns, then <laughs> it'll all be worth it. It's our key yeah. listenership. <laughs> Have you got anything to plug? I think you've got the article in Red Pepper, like I do, in the latest issue. Is there anything else you would like to highlight that you've been up to recently, David? Just a couple of writing things, if that's all right. If people look at the main Jacobin website, I put up, they, they run an article of mine on Friday last week about the attack on free speech in British workplaces. It's an article that I tried to get into The Guardian. Guess what? They didn't run it, but Jacobin did run it. And it, 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 I really put a lot of work into trying to get together in one place all the evidence there is about how many people in Britain have been told you could lose your job for speaking up for Palestine. I think so. the order of something like 300 people, and this is like probably the worst free speech crisis we've had in Britain, arguably, for something like 70 years. A lot of people have been sharing that article, thanks, but it'd be really nice if people did look that on the Jacobin website because I put a lot into it. And then if people are interested, it's not really what we've been talking about today, but, but kind of more like the, the, what's going to happen through the rest of the year and with America. I've got a piece going up on Tempest sometime early next week, which will be all about, you know, what are the stakes in the presidential elections at the end of this year? How seriously should we take the risk of a Trump victory? Would Trump be a fascist? I, mean, I agree with you. It, it's it's bad move to try and identify the Israeli far right with fascism. It it just doesn't particularly explain anything, but but becomes just a row in itself. Whereas obviously, by contrast, when we're talking about the states, actually lots of people do go backwards and forwards about thinking whether Trump is a fascist, whether his movement is a fascist. And again, I've tried to write the big piece, taking that argument seriously, not necessarily totally agreeing with it, but trying to explain why it's an argument where that, that you've got to seriously consider and whatever the answer there is. The answer is not as simple as just no full stop. The answer is more complicated than that. Cool. And we'll link what we can in the, in the show notes. And Brilliant. with that, we'll say goodbye. Bye, yeah. everybody. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.